0: Amelia, welcome. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. I'm so excited for this. It's literally been years in the making. Um, Okay, so let's start with you signed up for your first Tough Mudder when you were age 28. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Around then, I think. Yes.
0: (laughs) And you said that you signed up because you realized you couldn't do a single pull-up, something I still cannot do today. But why do you think you thought, wait, I can't do a single pull-up. So I'm naturally going to sign up for a Tough mutter. How did that thought
1: process go? (laughs) I mean, I think that it was something that I, I mean, you know, like you need a goal or a reason to be able to do something. People are always like, I, I said, I can't do it. pull up. I have no upper body strength, but as much as I tried to do, try it on my own, I was like, okay, if I have a goal, then maybe I'll get better at this. Um, even if I fail miserably at first.
0: <laughs> yes. So what was, what was the very first, uh, Tough Mudder? Like, like, were you extremely sore? How did you do
1: Um, I think I fell off of every single obstacle. I remember there were monkey bars and you know, how you think about as a kid that you're able to do monkey bars, like back and forth all the time. And I like got two rungs in and fell off and it was embarrassing. And and I said, Oh, all right. Like, this is, this is really hard. Uh, and it's kind of, I'm kind of embarrassed that I can't do this stuff anymore. And so, um, I think that that's kind of lit a fire in me because I don't like being, quote unquote bad at things. Hey,
0: I'm, I'm the same way. That's really interesting. Yeah. So you went, you were bad or, you know, you mm-hmm. thought you, you were yeah. embarrassed by it. And so you said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to show
1: these people what I can do. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it wasn't, but it wasn't so much about showing other people. It was more about showing myself. It was more about figuring out that like, I can do this on my own. I don't really care if other people know that I can do it, but it's just something that I was like intrinsically great. Like it, it kind of grated at me that I couldn't let go of it.
0: (laughs) How long, how many races did you do
1: before you were satisfied with your performance? Oh, I, I, I honestly, to this day, I still don't think I'm ever satisfied. Um, because there's always something that you can improve. And, um, It's never, I don't, it's what I've learned. And I told myself over many, many years of racing that at some point I would be, you know, I, I, that, that would be enough. But then I realized that the goalposts always kind of move. And so you think you, you've accomplished something and you say, okay, I've won a world championship, but then you're like, oh, but can I win too? Or can, and so it's just, (laughs) It never—it's never, never going to be enough. And once I kind of realize that, I'm like, okay, it's never going to be enough. <laughs> That's amazing. It, this is
0: similar but different. Um, like for example, when you start first start doing something like yoga, you're like, oh, this yeah. is easy. And then as you go on, it gets harder because you realize you've been doing it wrong all along. You're like, oh, this is how you do it. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, okay. So you actually got really, really good and you went on to be become a four-time world champion and one of the mm-hmm. most decorated obstacle racers in history, which is absolutely insane. And you did all of this while working full-time at Apple as an attorney. Mm-hmm. And my question is like, how, (laughs) what did your morning routine look like? When did you find time to train? Just like how? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've actually always found that I am most productive when I have multiple balls up in the air. And it's that cliche saying that if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly how I operate. And so it was very much knowing that I needed to kind of fit in everything gave me a structure and routine. It was just non-negotiable. And I started waking up at, I've always been an early riser, but I started waking up at like four o'clock in the morning. And um, I, I, used, Amelia. <laughs> I, yeah, I I still to this day, wake up at that time, just like my body's like, all right, let's go. Um, and um, cause I realized that that was the one time where I wouldn't be bothered by people, by work. And that if I waited till the end of the day, then I want to get the training in. Um, and so it just was a matter of like fitting it in and it was kind of fun for me to see what I could do with that
0: so okay so you would wake up at four in the morning and then what mm-hmm. did you do
1: uh I mean I would I uh, saw so I pretty much I'd wake up and then I would like drink coffee eat a little bit something get out the door and hit the trails um mm-hmm. and so and then run in the morning and then strength training a few times a week so and then I'd be in the office by 7 30 or so yeah <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine.
0: Okay. So how, how much, how many miles would you run in the mornings?
1: I mean, it, it varied, um, to be honest, like I, I, for my training kind of morphed over, over time, um, to focus more on running and less on, I was doing a lot of CrossFit back in the day. Mm. Um, but I mean, I would think that my training in the morning was between like an hour and a half, two hours, all said and done. Um, Mm -hmm. mileage, actually, I just, I never really tracked because I would, I run like up and down mountains, which is a very different thing than, I mean, you're going to run a lot slower doing that. And so, you know, um, it's kind of, it's changed a lot. Um, but it was generally like a few hours in the mornings
0: Got it. And so during that time, whether you're training or whether it's an actual race, how do you occupy your mind during these like super long distances?
1: Yeah. Great question. I, um, there's, I go back and forth between like associating and dissociating almost Hmm. when you're running. And so sometimes It's like, I need to do everything that I can to get my mind off of what is happening right now. So I would sing a lot of songs over and over and over again in my head when I was going through a really low point. Um, And then sometimes I would just associate and focus on like, how is my body feeling right now? And like, focus on each of the steps as you're running or like each of the obstacles and obstacle racing, especially with like the 24 hour races, it's very easy to break up. So I'd always be like, okay, just get to the next obstacle and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Instead of thinking, you know, you have... 23 hours left to go. And that seems overwhelming. If you just break it up into little chunks, you can almost fool yourself to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) I love
0: that. We're going to come back to this later uh, when we talk about like actual techniques. Cause I actually learned a lot from you when I was, um, attempting to do a marathon (laughs) (laughs) and I was like, let me listen to everything that (laughs) Amelia has done. Um, okay. So, but you are also a really good writer and I found that a lot of like distance runners are actually really good writers do you does running help your
1: writing in any way you know I think so I actually write most everything that I put out I actually write when I'm running to be honest how how I mean it's not as sometimes I mean I will carry my phone and have my like have the notes app if I something strikes me and I'll write it down but actually a lot of my writing is just visual in my head and I kind of think about it and then I'll like when I get home from after the run, then I'll like jot down everything. And so that's where I come up with everything. It's kind of where it like it turns over in my brain,
0: so that's interesting. So you actually visualize the structure of what you're gonna write, and then you you start you write it in your notes or you scribble it down somewhere,
1: yeah, absolutely. And I kind of, I mean, it, it changes, but I, I, certain lines come to me or certain themes come to me, or it's like how it all melds together. Um, I mean, I, that's honestly that and swimming are the two places where I can kind of just like shut down my mind and think about that.
0: <laughs> Do you think that's because you're actually allowing your mind to wander and therefore these ideas are kind of coming together and you're making certain associations between them
1: or is it something else? I think so. Absolutely. Because if you sit me down in front of a computer and I say, okay, I need to write right now. I, it's, it's not going to happen. Like Fantastic. I can't, I've never been good on forced timelines, which is also probably people have always asked to like, why, why don't you, you know, it's flattering because people like my writing and they say, well, why don't you write for X, Y, and Z or do this? And, and I'm like, mm-hmm. because when somebody gives me a deadline, I can't produce. Absolutely. It's more like it needs to strike me on my own time. So yeah, yeah,
0: I always I always say that I think for me it's the same thing. I can't find motivation staring at a blank yeah. Google Doc uh, or yeah. page. I think you just when you have an idea, you need to let it marinate. And for some people it's running, for other people it's driving. It just you need to let your mind wander in order
1: to uh in order for your brain to make relationships between these like crazy ideas you may have. Oh, and absolutely. And I think that most of the things that I write about are things that Everything I read about are things that I don't have figured out, mm. um, and so me, the writing process is actually me trying to figure out and work through and process different ideas and concepts and yes. everything like that. So it's been very therapeutic for me um, to to be able to do that. God, I could talk to you about this forever, but (laughs) we will move on. Um, So in 2019,
0: you ran Biggs Backyard Ultra, which is this Mm -hmm. insane race. I'm so fascinated by it. Um, But basically, it's an event in which runners have one hour to complete a 4.167 mile loop. And then you have to do it over and over and over again until there's only one person left standing. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have to be invited
1: to participate in this race? You know, initially when he started it out, uh, many years ago, it was just like his friends who crazy people who decided to show up. And now it's become this thing where there's actually like these qualifying races to mm. be then be able to show up and you have to apply because it is literally in his backyard. Uh, and so it's very, it's a very small field, but yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. So when
0: were you like ecstatic when you realized you were going to run this race? <laughs>
1: I, you know, I wasn't, I was also scared because I felt like I, I had like little business being there. Everybody else had done these multi-day races, had run for six days in a row, had run across the country. And while I had done 24 hour races, I had never, you know, this is a last man standing race. So you run in circles until there's only one person left and you just, you don't know how far it's going to go. But Mm. I, I love racing for me. I love the pure, the mental aspect of it. And that's yes. what so much of this was mental. So much of this was mental. And that's the, that's the type of races I've drawn to.
0: Fascinating. Okay. So the reason this, this race, like on the surface looks so easy, like one hour, yeah. four miles, yeah. like whatever. But the fact that there is an element of uncertainty, you don't know when you're going to have to, when, when the mm-hmm. finish line is, I think that's what makes it probably so so difficult. Um, can you tell me about the mental aspect of the race yeah. like more so than the physical? how did your brain
1: react to it? what were you feeling? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's funny because right now when people talk about the pandemic, I'm like, this is a last man standing race everybody. yes. You don't, <laughs> you don't know when the finish is gonna be. And so you just have to keep going and put your head down and keep going. Um, Because everyone has been trying to compare it to a marathon. I'm like, no, 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 not a marathon. Marathon, you know where the finish line is. Uh, Here, we don't know. Um, For me, I think that the mental aspect is really you go in waves. Um, And I never really had a problem with mental aspect. It was always my body that broke down in the two years that I did it. (laughs) Um, That I was like, that prevented me from going on. But I think that it's very much just focusing on getting through that next loop in front of you. Mm. And it's like everything that we do in life is that I, even now, right now, I look and I'll have these nights where I'll lay in bed and say, uh, I look 10 years down from the road and I go, I I don't know what I'm going to be doing. And I have no idea and blah, 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 blah. And it starts to feel overwhelming and you start to spiral and think, what am I doing with my life? And then you say, no, Amelia, wake up tomorrow morning put one leg in a pants, like your other, you put your pants on the same way and like, yeah, do, do your thing. And it's just breaking it into little chunks. And that's really what life is, you know, and that's how I do racing as well.
0: Yeah. And so before you, you just mentioned this before this race, uh, you had never run a hundred miles in a race before, correct? Right. Uh, But, but a lot of the other competitors had, in moments like this, do you ever panic and you're like, oh my God, I don't think I'm prepared for this. Or do you like feeling underestimated and, and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah. I think I go through a bit of both, but I actually do. I do my best racing when I feel a little bit intimidated. The first yes. time that I did world toughest mudder, like the 24 hour obstacle race, I had never run more than 13 miles in my life and I had zero business in thinking I could run for 24 hours. And so it's just that kind of like, can I do this? I don't even know if I can do it. I don't know what my limits are. I don't know what my mental limits are, my physical limits are. So let's find that out.
0: Yeah, and in in, uh, in the process of finding that out, do you ever just deal with straight up fear? Like, oh my God, I am scared. <laughs>
1: Oh, all the time. I'm terrified pretty much before every single race. And, uh, I'm one of those people that actually admits that. And cause most people are like competitors, real competitors don't admit that. And I'm like, nah, nah, I'm, I will tell everyone that I'm terrified. Um, because I think it's very normal. And I think that if you don't have that, there's actually something wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that, that actually just uh, reminded me something. I listened to this podcast that you did with Shane Parrish on Farnham street. yeah, And you mentioned, that uh, you grew up and like, as a kid, you were pretty fearful of like a lot of things. Mm-hmm. How did you, okay. You recognize that about yourself. How did you go about overcoming it?
1: Yeah. I think that the number one thing for me is it's, it's all exposure therapy. And I never mm-hmm. really realized this because that term I don't think was used when I was little. Um, And, but the idea that to be able to work through your fears, you're going to have to face them over and over again. And the more times you do it, it's going to take away the power of the things that, and you suddenly all of a sudden realize that that's, I have nothing to fear there. Like I have nothing to fear. Um, And um, so that's been really, that's been the main way that I say, okay, if I'm terrified of this, I should be doing it. Um, I mean, it's within, within reasons and limits, you know, um, but yeah. if it is something that for some reason I'm scared, I'm like, I have no reason to be scared of that. Um, and I think that I just, to get over all of that, have just continually done that within my life. I think that's a really good example of the idea that
0: competence actually breeds confidence mm-hmm. and, and not the other way around. Um, uh, who was it? Uh, the astronaut Chris Hadfield. He has this thing where he says, Okay, when you're little and you see a bike and you're like, man, that thing is like really dangerous. I could fall, I could hit my head. A lot of things can go wrong. Like yeah. That's a dangerous thing. But then as you get better and you learn how to ride the bike, like it's not that the bike get got any less dangerous, it's that you got better. And more right. competent and more confident in your ability. So I think that that's a little bit of how, okay, I'm scared of this thing. Let me try to mm-hmm. conquer it by doing it and getting better.
1: That's mm-hmm. really cool. Absolutely.
0: Um, okay. So one thing that I, I love is that you've been dubbed the queen of, uh, of pain or the queen of suffering. <laughs> and you've said that the, that mastering the art of suffering is actually where freedom lies. Why mm. do you think that?
1: You know, I, I think that it, it, it's interesting because I think that, and, and I always need to differentiate between suffering and I sometimes cringe at this because, um, this is <laughs> this is voluntary suffering. And when I say that, you know, it, um, and, uh, versus there are many places in life where suffering is not voluntary, but I think right. that when you put yourself through situations that are very hard and you do that on purpose, it helps you to deal with the messiness in life that is not voluntary. Mm. Um, And so, I mean, it's like, because we're all going to go through involuntary suffering at other times in life. But I think that when you, when you have those, have those experiences is that you suddenly realize like, I'm strong enough to get through this and this and this. And then that's where you start to find this freedom that like, no matter what happens out there, like, Life is going to go on, and you are going to survive this. And it may suck, but like you'll get through it, and then you'll come out the other side.
0: Do you have a specific example in your life where you feel like the voluntary suffering helped prepare you in a moment of involuntary suffering?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it it very much in. Oh God, I have so many. Um, <laughs> I was like, I don't. Even know. <laughs> know where to go there. But I, I mean, the one thing that it's, it's taught me is that like everything is fleeting. Pain is fleeting. Feelings are fleeting. How you feel in this moment is going to change. Wow. Um, and so when I've been through heartbreak, when I've been through breakups, when I've been through job changes every time, I'm like, okay, I'm really in it right now. Like I'm really in it. I'm having a really bad time. Life sucks. But I kind of tell myself, it's like the chop wood carry water and just like focus on what is in front of you and things will slowly change, may not be immediate and maybe longer than you want it to be. Um, but you know, I, I, I remember that from racing because it is just, you'll go through ups and downs. Um, and, uh, you can't always predict those. Okay. So yes.
0: (laughs) And this leads me to, um, you once said that you make friends with pain, which Mm -hmm. actually personifies pain as a human, another endurance runner who also does something similar is Courtney doll Walter. Mm -hmm. She personifies pain because she thinks about it as an actual place. And she calls it the pain cave because she's equal. She's in charge of going in, but she's also Mm -hmm. in control of when she gets out. Um, Do you do that? Like, is there a reason why you say you make friends with pain and think about it as like a human being in a way or a living thing versus just like, oh my God, I'm in pain. I cannot go on.
1: Yeah. I think because you, I don't want to see pain ever as an adversary. Um, Pain is your friend. Pain gives you cues. Pain tells you, you know, what you need to focus on. And so uh, like most of the time during races, I will say, okay, like, X, Y, and like my foot hurts. And I'll be like, okay, foot, you kind of hurt right now. (laughs) And no, I literally talk to the different body parts and then the foot will start hurting and something else will hurt. And then my brain will start. So it's just, or my stomach will start imploding. And I think that if you just kind of, if I personify pain, I don't, I think of it as separate from me. And if I make friends with it, then it is just something there to like guide me on and to teach me. And it's it's a lesson in so many different ways.
0: Do you, okay, so so when you talk to a certain body part, like, oh my God, you know, foot, you yeah. really hurt right now. How, so how do you get past that?
1: I mean, I, it is something that like, <laughs> this sounds so funny. And I used to not believe in this at all, but it's almost like this weird positive self-talk and be like, yes. you're fine foot, you're totally fine you know, and you're strong and you've carried me through all this training and this is nothing and we're going to be fine, you know, but there are mm-hmm. certain points that if you end up breaking a bone, you probably shouldn't be running on that anymore. But, <laughs> and we've all been there and done that the wrong way. Um, but I think that it is something that it, it just takes away the power because with yes. pain, it starts spiral. Um, so yeah.
0: I think that's, again, I think that's another thing that Courtney talks about how she uh, talks to herself as you would to a child during mm-hmm. races, because I think like that, that that distance and that, um, gentle voice of like, you're okay. Like, yeah, don't throw a tantrum right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think that that also does help. That's really interesting. Um, what does being mentally tough mean to you?
1: you know I think that I my answer to this has changed over the years uh constantly um because I used to think mental tough mentally tough was showing zero signs of vulnerability showing zero emotions I wanted so much in my life to just be that person that just like stone cold killer just had no emotions thought everything through logically uh and that just it wasn't me Um, but I tried to really just be that person. And now I think for me being mentally tough is actually to notice everything, to notice all my emotions, to not judge my emotions, to not judge my thoughts, um, to like, to kind of be like, okay, that's not you. And then to be able to react to those appropriately, you know, and then to be able to move through hard situations, and um, move through the pain without just shutting it out. Uh, because just like, just, just shutting it out and not dealing with it is never going to get you anywhere. Cause it's going to come out somehow. Um, and so that's what I've learned.
0: <laughs> and in one way that came out for you, um, was in 2019, you suffered a fourth stress fracture and mm-hmm. it, it like that, um, that surfaced old wounds that you tried to kind of keep under wraps uh you wrote a really powerful blog post called the recovery i needed uh and it it gave me goosebumps because i know like just as a fellow writer reading it i knew that was hard for you to write but like i Mm -hmm. knew that you needed to write it that's that's how it came off um and you wrote the hardest things to fix are the things that we don't want to admit to ourselves so can you tell me about that chapter of your life and how how you realized that
1: yeah. Um, so I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 16 years old and I was hospitalized. I was a very, I was very, very sick. Um, and, um, I went through a period of my life in high school and college where I was in and out of treatment. And, um, I, at some point just decided, I'm like, I'm done with this. I don't want to be identified as the sick girl anymore. I don't want to, I, I don't want this to be part of my life. So I kind of like shut it away and I hit it and I thought I had kind of entered into recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you started to be an athlete, started competing. Um, and I, I just, you know, in so many different, in, in so many different ways was like, okay, I have a new chapter of my life. That chapter is old. It's not there anymore. Um, unfortunately eating disorders are very sneaky illnesses. And over the years, things started creeping back in and creeping back in and old habits came back and Old thought patterns. Um, and so I started to realize like when I was around 33, 34, that, that things were getting bad for me again, but I was doing so well in racing and huh. I was winning everything and I was on, you know, winning world championships and I was on top of the podium. I could justify to myself. Like there's nothing wrong. If I actually still had a problem, like I wouldn't be doing all of this. Yeah. Um. And then all of a sudden it just, I started breaking bones over and over and over again. And um, I finally had to take a look, hard look at myself and say, I'm 35 years old and I still have an eating disorder and I need to fix this because it's keeping me from doing what I love to do. It's keeping mm-hmm. me from racing. And it's also keeping me from really engaging in life because everything in my life was about protecting the eating disorder. And, um, you know, I couldn't be in relationship with people. I couldn't show up for friends and it was all about, it was all about me. Um, so, you know, I made that hard decision that I was like, I'm going to go back into treatment. And now is the time that I'm actually also going to speak about this because like, I have felt so alone for so many years going through this. Um, and, uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to be alone anymore.
0: Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, um, it took several fractures for you to kind of admit it to yourself. Mm-hmm. Were you like when, when you started breaking bones, did you think maybe it could be this, but you kind of pushed it away
1: and were in denial a little bit, or how did that, uh, work? Yeah, I, it was this, it was this overwhelming shame because I, you know, with the first one, I I broke my femur, which is a hard bone to break. Yeah. And I was kind of like chalked it up to training errors, but then things started piling up and i i had this nagging voice that i was like i'm doing everything else right mm-hmm. but i know that i'm not nourishing myself properly like and and so it was this slow burn and it took me probably 2 or 3 years to get to the point where i finally just said you know, I, I need this to change. And that was hard. Cause I had so much shame. Cause I thought that I should be able to handle it on my own. I thought if I was a stronger person, mm. I would be able to handle it on my own. Um, and asking for help just wasn't in my, my vocabulary. Wow. So, uh, there's this thing that David Goggins talks about, which is
0: the accountability mirror. And it's like mm-hmm. the hardest person to lie to is yourself at the end of the day. Um, So there's a lot of people I'm sure right now that are struggling with something, whether they're ashamed by it or they don't want to admit it. Uh, Was there a moment where you said, I like need to seek help uh, versus waiting for other people to tell me, like, how did you come to that moment of accountability?
1: Mm -hmm. I actually reached it. uh, I was, I was with my extended family over Christmas in like 2018 Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, everyone was having this great time. There were like 20 of us. I hadn't seen my extended family forever. And all I could do was obsess over like all of the food that was in front of me Hmm. and like whether or not I was able to go out for a run that day. And I couldn't be present with my family. And no one knew this, you know, they, like, I hadn't talked to them about, but like, it was crushing me because I felt so just dissociated from what was going on. Yeah. And I think that that was the moment where I realized I was like, I am not living life. Life is really hollow right now for me. And like, I want to experience more of life.
0: Do you think that the disorder, when you were winning all these races and you were, it, it appeared that you were at the top of your sport, did you feel internally kind of different about it?
1: I, um, I mean, I think I dealt with imposter syndrome (laughs) for many reasons, you know, just being like, I'm not that good. I don't know why I'm winning. Uh, but I, you know, I think that I just, I, I, because things were going so well, because I was getting all this external validation and I was winning races and every like I could pretend there was nothing wrong. So Mm. I just, I just walled it off. I just didn't even deal with it for so many years.
0: So the external validation did not help. Even all the external validation in the world couldn't help like how you were feeling inside because it was kind of oh.
1: what you called dissociative. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think that that was like the main thing that I, one of the main things that I've learned from this is that, you know, you can get you can get people to tell you wonderful things all day, every day, but you're not going to like, it's never going to replace That the feeling that you need to cultivate on your own, you know, and for me, I needed to, I had this cognitive dissonance between how I thought the world saw me and how I saw myself and what I was going through. And I really needed to like, to change that, to get them to like, to come together as the same person.
0: Yes. And why was it important for you to share this publicly? Because
1: I can't imagine you were like, I'm going to share this right now. Like, I'm sure it took time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had for many years as I was kind of struggling in in and out, I uh, I would always read uh, accounts of people who had recovered from eating disorders Mm -hmm. and people would talk about their eating disorder after they were recovered with an ED, you know, and just done. And that, that was a chapter in my life, but I'm better than this now. No Mike. one was talking about it when they were actually going through it. And I understand why, you know, because like you need to protect your own recovery. You need to, it's it's a delicate situation. Um, but I decided that I wanted to give voice to what it's actually like to go through this. Yeah. And if anything, it's it's me writing about it actually shores up my own recovery because like now I actually am accountable to the rest of the world. <laughs> um, yes. and, uh, and, you know, I find strength through other people who then share with me. Have you so. received a lot of responses from people who have found, uh, who have read your story and shared their own? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think the like the number of people who have said, who like actually said, like, I, you, you made me take a hard look at myself And like, go back into therapy, go back into treatment, go do all those things and, and, and be like, it's okay to do this. Or like, it's okay to do this at age 45, you know, like there, and, and I think that that's like, so important for me because I never got that from people. I never, I thought that this was a young person's thing. I thought that as a mid thirties woman, I shouldn't be dealing with this anymore. So
0: Wow, it it's it just it breaks my heart how many taboos there are and how many like mm-hmm. weird limits we put on things like oh this is a young person's uh illness right. or this is you know and it's just like no it's it's really not um but I'm, I'm glad
1: you did share it publicly and can you uh share where you are in your journey today? Yeah. You know it's it's been interesting. So it's been about uh Oh, I mean, almost two years since I, um, went back into treatment. And, um, I think that it's, it's ups and downs. Um, I found a very good, I'm running healthy. I've been the healthiest in terms of running that I ever have. So that's fantastic. Um, you know, I'm like, Oh, this food things works. Uh, so <laughs> it does. I mean, that was a main reason for me to go back into treatment. Um, But what I've kind of learned is actually now I've moved past the part where food is really not the hard part anymore, but understanding now that that was a coping mechanism for me for Mm -hmm. 20 years, like that was when anything was hard in life, I would just shut down and turn to the eating disorder. Um, Hmm. and now it's this process of learning how to live again without that coping mechanism there. And that, you know, it's been a hard year for that, given, given everything that's happened in the world, um, but it is just kind of like the more that you practice living life without it, like the easier it becomes.
0: How are you balancing nourishment and rest with your passion for racing and suffering mm-hmm. through the pain and getting through it?
1: Yeah. You know, and it's really hard because I've had a lot of people who say like, you can't be an athlete and be in recovery for eating disorder huh. because like they're they would think that the athlete part is part of, is part of it. And, you know, I worked on that a lot in treatment because I wanted to know, I was like, is this feeding my eating disorder or is this, can this actually, can I do this in a healthy way? Can I be Mm -hmm. an athlete and like be in recovery? And um, so for me, it's a lot about just like non-negotiables, hard accountability with other people, um, you know, with a team of therapists and a dietitian and everything like that um, to make sure that I can do what I love And, but also, um, you know, like not do it to the point where it's detrimental to myself. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And that's really, that's really incredible. Um, and it's amazing. You're doing so much better and it's so cool to me and I'm sure to a lot of other people that you don't have to give up what you love in order to succeed at something else. Like you can do both in moderation with pacing <laughs> and understanding that there
1: are times when you need to rest right yeah absolutely you know and it has been the adding rest back in has been huge you know i have a coach who's like one rest day a week you know at least and and that kind of stuff and then just learning that how to move through that space and dealing with things that are uncomfortable in there and um it's been uh it's it's been really fulfilling to you know come to that point
0: that's really cool. So, I worked on a profile dossier on you 2 years ago. You're actually my first one. I've done 50 cents, but you were the first one That's I worked amazing. on. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was so cool. I still remember where I was when I first listened to your uh Shame Parish uh podcast. I was on a plane. I was mm-hmm. listening to it and I was like, "Oh, you know, I just listened to a podcast fall asleep." That didn't happen. I was like scribbling notes. I was like, "Oh, oh whatever. <laughs> it was so cool." But I learned a lot of useful techniques for myself mm-hmm. when I was training for that marathon. So one of those lessons that you shared earlier was to practice chunking, and mm-hmm. which means you break down long endurance events into little chunks. But I think that also applies to life with anything. And like you mentioned with COVID, like you don't yeah. know where the end lies. Um, can you explain how shifting your focus on the the little milestones? helps you complete the full race.
1: Yeah. I mean, because I think that, um, the number one thing is that like a hundred mile race is one mile at a time. And so I think that if I get overwhelmed and think like, okay, I have 96 miles left to go, then I'm never going to make it. Um, so I think that it's, it's really just like focusing on here and now and focusing on like what you can control immediately in front of you. Because when you start to think 24 hours down the line, when you start to think six months, six years, 60 years down the line, it gets overwhelming. And you might as well just throw your hands up and say, I'm done. I can't do it. It's impossible. So,
0: okay, let me, Oh, no worries. (laughs) Let me, let me ask you something that I read that like kind of contradicts this idea and I get both, but I can't, I can't, um, put them together in my brain. So Mike Posner, uh, he walked across America and I read this profile where he said that in his mind, he was like, just make it to Kansas, just make it to Kansas. Mm -hmm. And that became like a mantra for him. He made it to Kansas. And then his like entire body started breaking down. Cause I think he kind of thought like, okay, you made it to Kansas. Like now it's time to relax. Right. How do you practice chunking without like being like, okay, I'm here, but you still have more to go.
1: Right. Yeah. Because then you're like, okay, I'm here. But then you like, I. it's it's really just, (laughs) this sounds really weird, but my brain starts to go down the road and starts like spiral. I actually literally say not now brain. Like I will (laughs) say it out loud um, and it brings me back to the moment, you know, Hmm. and it brings me. And so instead of, because like that's how we're always going to do that. We're always going to trip to the future Uh, but just even for me, it's verbal cues, it's visual cues. Um, Mm. for a long time, I wrote the word be on my wrist. And so it was just like a visual indication, just a reminder, just like to be present in this moment. Um, and and like to bring you back, uh, because it does, you know, seem to get overwhelming at times.
0: (laughs) Do you have any like mantras or anything mental that you repeat to yourself in the really, really dark moments?
1: You know, I to in very, very dark moments. I think it's, it actually is. I start to talk to myself kind of like Courtney in like a, a very much like inner child type of way. Yeah. And it's like, you know, very kind, very loving. And then being like, okay, what do you need right now to do this? And like, are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you thirsty? Like, what is that immediate need that you can take over Take care of right now.
0: Mm-hmm. And, um, and you also talk about one thing that we definitely agree, agree on is that mm-hmm. you should do, you should try to do one thing every day that you absolutely do not want to do, but it, it would be good for you to do like one, one thing every day that sucks. Um, yes. so you've said that you actually enjoy running when it's cold, when it's dark, yeah. when it's raining, why do you think that's important in build building confidence and mental resilience?
1: I mean, I think that, like if you expose yourself to different elements, if you expose yourself to being uncomfortable after a while, it's going to get comfortable. Um, you know, it's after a while, you're going to say like, I ran, it was like negative five out this weekend. And it was like, first, I was like, man, this sucks. But then when I finished, I was like, okay, I've done that, you know, and it's, and it's no longer that bad. And so if you expose yourself to every type of situation, then when push comes to shove, if it's in a race situation, like you can handle that. You have the confidence of knowing that you can handle that.
0: Yeah. And another thing is that you have not gone full-time as an athlete. You've actually Mm -hmm. kept your job as an attorney because, uh, you say that it's important to have more than one identity. Mm -hmm. So how did you come to this realization that maybe we shouldn't wrap our entire
1: identity around one external thing? So I think for me, understanding that being an athlete is very fickle and one injury can um, can do you. And, and, and it also, I started being an athlete because I wanted a break from being an attorney. I wanted a different outlet. And the moment that that became something where that was how I needed to put food on the table, it would actually change my relationship with the sport. Huh. Um, and so I think for many years – I've just been like, I don't want to have my identity wrapped up in one thing, because if that goes away, then you have nothing else left. And so I know if I can ever race again, I'm still an attorney, you know, I'm still a dog mom, I'm still a daughter, I'm still a sister. But like, if so, I think if for me, I love having, you know, a, like a bunch of different baskets to put my life into.
0: That's really interesting because I feel the same way. And it came from a time where I labeled myself one way and then that mm-hmm. went away. And I, I was just like my whole like confidence and so forth, I had nothing to wrap it around. And then you realize the, by, by um, wrapping your identity around your own name, that's probably the most powerful thing. Do you think it's important to have something that you do professionally, but something that you do just for yourself?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think that I think there, everybody needs something that like, you can hold close to you as like, as something that brings you joy in like all moments. Um, and it's not something that you think you should be doing. It's Mm -hmm. not something that others tell you to do. It is something that like genuinely like lights your fire. And so, and Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that your profession has to be your passion. I actually like, don't, I I don't believe in that at all. I mean, I like that. I like, I like being an attorney, but being an attorney is not my passion. And I prefer to have my passion as something that is not tied to whether or not I can, you know, pay my mortgage or put food on the table uh, because I can take more risks than in my passion. And, you know, and I can really go for it in that way. And then I have the stable, the stability of, of the job and the profession um, that enables me to do my passion.
0: I really like that perspective because I think a lot of people are constantly like, okay, how do I turn my passion into a business, into a Mm full-time thing? But what you're saying is, no, no, like you can still have that, that, you know, uh, intellectual stimulation, but you can also have something that you do for yourself that nobody can take away from you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Um, okay. Another thing that I really like is something you call the merry-go-round of self-flagellation. <laughs> that is so <laughs> elaborate and specific. You can't get out of your head. And it's visual too. Yes. Um, so you call this the, the vicious cycle of failing, getting upset about the failure and then berating yourself for being upset about the failure. Um, <laughs> yes. So can you, can you explain this and like why, how you get off that merry-go-round?
1: <laughs> yes, the merry-go-round of self-flagellation is my favorite thing because I rode that merry round for several, several years. Uh, so it was getting injured, then being upset with myself that I'm injured, and then like, and then just so it's the secondary emotions, is what I really learned is that you are angry and then you're angry at yourself for being angry. So you're ashamed of that. And then you you get in this vicious kind of shame spiral. And the only way out of it is to like, look at yourself with compassion. And instead of like being angry at yourself saying, no, okay, like that's, that happened. And like, and give love to yourself and self-compassion. And I really realized that I, one of the, like the turning points for me was realizing that how easy I am to forgive others. I forgive others and their faults. I love people's messiness. I love, <laughs> like, I love all of that. And I forgive people so quickly and I never can show that towards myself. Yeah. And so it's been this active practice. And I'm still not great at it of just learning to forgive myself, you know? And I tell myself over and over again, when the and I don't know where I heard it, um, but it's like, you were doing the best you were, you, you were doing the best you could with the tools that you had at the time. And, um, and so, and I tell myself that, and it's like, I was doing the best that I could with the tools that I had at the time. I have better tools now, so I can do better now.
0: That's awesome. And I love, I also love the messiness because to me,
1: perfect people are really boring. So I love, (laughs) I love the people who have upgraded their tools over time. (laughs) Or their projection of perfect because nobody is perfect. So you know that they're hiding something.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. And it's it's fascinating, right? Like I always say that I think your insecurities kind of become your um, greatest strengths or something that you aspire to be. Like I thought it was interesting when you were talking about how, um, you became like, you wanted to be like a stone cold murderer type person Mm -hmm. who shows no emotion, but it's probably because you kind of over-rotated of, I never want people to see me as a sick girl again. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think we all go through that, but then, and then you realize like there's so many layers to people. That's why (laughs) I try not to, I try not to judge anybody, no matter what they say or do. I'm like, you don't know what they have going on right now.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You don't, you can't, you can't ever tell. And so I think that that's for me also why I'm just like huge on transparency as well. So I'm just like, no, I will tell you what I'm going through at this moment. And so it's like understanding compassion and empathy for others. Yeah.
0: That's really cool. Um, so, and and by the way, as part of the merry-go-round of self-flagellation, I, um, you, this is a, this is a quote from you, but I wrote it down. Um, you said uh, you've you said, I've tried to depersonalize it, detach and talk to myself from a third person perspective. And your advice is to give yourself a tangible time limit to feel bad and wallow in the feelings, and then consciously detach.
1: Do you still mm-hmm. practice that? You know, I try. Um, sometimes better than others if I give myself a date and I like put that date and I say, okay, like, Give yourself permission to grieve for two weeks and mm. then and then tell yourself, okay, like I can wallow in it, I can be sad, I can be angry, and then at that point, then move on. Um, I think I've now come more to the understanding is that like certain things, grief and loss, maybe have yeah. no specific timeline. So it's more like, give yourself two weeks. I actually mark it in my calendar wow. on something, and I say, and I say reevaluate. And so if I get to that point. And then if I'm like, no, I still need to process through all this stuff, then like put it again. But it's almost like marking that timeline and then move on. You
0: know? Do you think, do you think it works because it's kind of like a marker in your brain subconsciously? Your brain is like, all right, I have a deadline. You know? Yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's a deadline, but it's also giving yourself permission to, it's getting off that merry-go-round of self-flagellation and giving yourself permission to just wallow in it for a little yep. bit. Like there is nothing wrong with like when people tell you, oh, just get over it. Right, oh, That helps. That totally helps. Thank you. Thank you. It, it was only that easy. Um, yep. And people just, still say it. I <laughs> Somehow people still say it. <laughs> you know, with the eating disorder, it was just like, it's just food. Just eat the burger. I'm like, Oh, thank you. You just fixed yeah. all my problems, you know? 20 years <laughs> problems. Um, and so I think it's almost just like allowing yourself, like almost like physically giving yourself that gift to just feel, um, yeah. because that's the only way you're going to heal from anything, whether, you know, whether it be injury, whether it be loss of a job, you know, like a person, yes. a death. Yeah. Only way.
0: The the one time that I've done this and it and it worked for me was um when I it was with indecision. Uh, yeah. I was trying to decide whether I should leave my full-time job at Fortune to work on the profile full-time. That was mm-hmm. a really big decision to me. To other people, it may literally not be. But to me, it was like, oh my God, this is such a big deal. So I literally, in my calendar, I circled a date and I was like, I'm giving my brain like all this time to be indecisive and to go through the ups and downs. I called it the seesaw of misery where like you wake <laughs> up and you're like, I'm going to do this. And you go to bed right. and they're like, are you crazy? <laughs> no. Oh um so I I gave myself like a month for that and then like literally subconsciously I forgot about the thing and then I I looked at it and I was like wow I had at that point already decided and I had put in my two weeks notice so I'm like it's interesting how you kind of subconsciously move towards that because you told yourself like I'm giving you the time but like let's uh let's have you know reevaluate on a certain day
1: yeah, absolutely. I think the giving yourself permission is is huge because the moment when you say, "Oh, I should have done this by now. I shouldn't be I already think about this. I should be over this. I should be blah blah blah." Like you're going to shut yourself to death. So. Yep.
0: <laughs> shut yourself to death. That's great. Um okay, and so for someone who just wants to get started, whether it's endurance races or just running 1 mile, yeah. what let's say three tips do you have for them to kind of get in the right mindset to start forming that habit?
1: Yeah. I think the number one thing is to if if it's a motivation issue, set yourself up so you cannot fail. Hmm. So if it's something like, I know people and and I've done this before sleep in your running clothes so that when you get up the next morning, you're already in your running clothes like, and you need to go out. Um, and so, and it's almost like, I think it's what is like 28 days to form habit or something like that. And so I think that if it's a non-negotiable thing, I thought about it, like brushing my teeth and doing that over and over and over again, and it'll eventually become something that's just part of your life and the habit. Um, you know, and then also for anyone, like if you're getting into endurance sports or running, just also realize that it's going to suck at first and like to go slow because, and because I think most people start and give up within a few weeks, mm-hmm. but it's like, stick it out and understand that it's not going to be this linear path because you're going to like feel a little bit better. And then it's going to feel awful. And then it's like, gonna like anything in life, it's up and down. Um, but if you stick it out, like once you get over that hump, you're going to eventually like see it, you know? Yeah. So.
0: That's awesome. I every time I see somebody exercising no matter like how slow slowly mm-hmm. they're running I'm like I, I understand how that is like in high school, we had to run for soccer uh, a little bit longer distance and I was just like, Oh my God, I can't breathe. And so yeah. I, I think it's just taking that one step out of the door. And like you said, reducing the friction between you and that goal by run, uh, sleeping in your running clothes, for example, or putting out your shoes. Yeah. Uh, that's great advice. Okay. My final question to yeah. you is what does the word success mean to you?
1: Hmm you know, success to me is it's, it feels like it's more of a feeling. It's like a contentment with knowing that like with it's a contentment and a confidence with who you are and what you put out in the world, not necessarily what you do, but I've come to realize that I don't care about monetary success. I don't care about like certain types of Success that we always like, um, that we always associate with it. For me, it's more of being in alignment with who I am and with how I treat other people and living according to that and living according to those values. And if I have all of those in line and I'm following my internal compass, then I view that as successful.
0: Absolutely, because. Again, like you may be at the top of the podium, but it may not feel mm-hmm. like success to you inside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Amelia. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me.